Support for this podcast comes from San Francisco International Airport. At SFO, you can discover award-winning flavors and unique shops all before takeoff. Learn more about what's at SFO at flysfo.com. Hi there. I'm Randa Fattah from ThruLine. If you're listening to this podcast, you know that KQED produces exceptional storytelling that keeps you informed, inspired, and entertained. Their podcasts cover issues from your neighborhood to the entire country and everything in between. Support this work today. You can help us continue to bring quality podcasts to your ears. Just head to donate.kqed.org podcast. That's donate.kqed.org podcast. From KQED. From KQED Public Radio, this is Political Breakdown. I'm Scott Schaefer. And I'm Marisa Lagos. Today on The Breakdown, he clerked for Supreme Court Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg. Now Goodwin Liu sits on the California Supreme Court. That's right. He was named to the court by Governor Jerry Brown after Republicans blocked Liu's nomination to the federal bench. We'll be talking with him about what he learned working with Justice Ginsburg and his thoughts on the battle to replace her. And uh, boy, Marisa, a week ago, of course, None of this had happened. Uh, the justice died on Friday. The eve of Rosh Hashanah uh, stunned everybody and has really upended the 2020 political election in, in a lot of ways. And it's going to be a big moment as this confirmation gets underway for our both of our senators, Senator Feinstein, who chairs Judiciary, Kamala Harris, of course, who's also running for vice president. What are your thoughts? Uh, I know you've begun doing some reporting about uh, Senator Feinstein. There are some concerns about her. What, what are your thoughts? Yeah, I mean, I think that this is really, you know, a, a study in contrast for as much as uh, sort of, you know, grief that sometimes Kamala gets from the left about not being progressive enough. You know, she is very much a different mold than Dianne Feinstein, who I think um, harkens back quite frankly, to another era in a lot of ways. Um, and, and and so we're seeing some concern. Politico had a story. I mean, I want to be clear. A lot of people who have concerns are not willing to say them on the record, right? <laughs> but there is questions about... She's a powerful about, senator. <laughs> yeah, and there's questions about whether she's up to the job. I mean, we did see during the Kavanaugh hearings, I think some people were disappointed by kind of the tenor of her questions. Um, obviously, Kamala Harris has made a name for herself with her prosecutorial kind of uh, uh, questioning of witnesses, whether they be confirmation hearings or otherwise. So I do think that Dianne Feinstein um, is, there is some concern within the Democratic caucus. I mean, the truth is, nothing she can do is likely going to hold up this nomination if the Republicans want to get it through. But I do think if Biden and Harris win and they retake the Senate, there will be questions. There are already questions about whether, you know, she's the right person to be um, chairing that committee because she is the ranking member on judiciary. Yeah, and that was I mean, a big part of her reelection argument, right? Yeah, was, exactly. Was I have the authority seniority. of the seniority, exactly. But, you know, in some ways it reflects this larger cleavage within the Democratic Party where you have, you know, Bernie Sanders and AOC and others really pushing for fundamental changes, Dianne Feinstein, Joe Biden, uh, and to a certain extent Kamala Harris, uh, really more of more about uh, evolution than revolution. Uh, and so I think some of that is, is, is going to play out. There are people that want, for example, Senator Feinstein to come out for expanding the court. And, uh, you know, a lot of people say this is not the time for that. Uh, we need to get through to the election. And then if Democrats take over, uh, there'll be plenty of time to talk about that. Kamala Harris, boy, she she is really in a spot. Um, of course, uh, she will be likely called a 
away from the campaign. She's got a debate with Mike Pence, the vice president, on October 7th. Uh, she's got a lot on her plate. And, um, you know, it'll be interesting to see how she navigates these hearings because I'm not sure she's going to take the same kind of combative role that she played, say, in the Kavanaugh hearings, um, because that's a high stakes uh, gamble for her to do that. It is. I mean, I wouldn't expect her to be too different from the Kamala Harris we know, but I think you're right. She may temper some of those criticisms. It might be a little bit different. I mean, she is in a different stage running for vice president than she would be as just the junior senator from a safely blue state. Um, but I don't expect her to pull all her punches for sure. And, and I mean, again, like you said, this is going to depend on who the nominee is. I think Democrats at this point are really trying to focus on the process and saying, regardless of who it is, we want, you know, this is really hypocritical given what happened in 2016 with Mayor Garland. Um, but, uh, and a lot of questions about whether the filibuster is uh, breathing its last breath. We'll get into that with our guest, I think, after the break. But yeah, I, I, I think um, whatever happens, they will be two to watch in that committee room. Yeah, we do have uh, uh, an election coming up, and it's going to be sort of in some ways in an election season more than election day. Uh, ballots will be going out to all registered voters in California. And there was a Berkeley IGS poll out this week that we, we've talked about on the air, uh, on the radio, and online this week. And Marisa, uh, they looked at four ballot measures in particular, uh, Prop 22, the Uber Lyft measure, Prop 15 on property taxes, uh, Prop 16, affirmative action, and 21 on rent control. And what struck me was the high percentage of voters who are still undecided on these issues. And I think in part that's because, you know, some of these are somewhat complicated and, you know, people haven't maybe studied them yet. But there's so much competition for voters' time with the pandemic and the wildfires and, you know, now the Supreme Court. It's going to be tough, I think, for these campaigns to break through. Yeah, I think you're right. I mean, I think that this is often an issue when we have this many ballot measures and they are complicated questions often that voters are being asked to kind of become experts on very quickly. Um, I think the sort of broader political tenor is definitely making it more challenging to break through. And the fact that, again, like these are not simple things, right? Talk, talk about Prop 15, property taxes. Will it affect small businesses or, and farms? Won't it? You know, a, a lot of these um, questions are, are really interesting. I will say on Prop 16, affirmative action, I think it'll be fascinating to see how the results of an audit this week that really found favoritism in some of the uh, decisions in terms of who got into a handful of the UCs, whether that is something that the campaign can really use to show voters who are so largely undecided that this is an issue that matters, um, you know, that maybe there is affirmative action for some people if you're wealthy enough and have the connections. Yeah, there's all kinds of affirmative action. All right, we're going to take a short break. And when we come back, we're going to be joined by California Supreme Court Justice Goodwin Liu. You're listening to Political breakdown from KQED Public Radio. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. Hey, it's Avery Truffleman, host of Articles of Interest. And I've got to say, I've been a fan of KQED ever since I was a little kid and I would come out to San Francisco to visit my grandma. It was just what we'd always turn on every time we got in the car, every time we were making dinner and turning on the radio. It was always KQED. 
And then over the years, I've become a massive fan of KQED podcasts because this is local reporting at its best. These are answers to questions you've always wanted to know, interviews with exciting, unusual voices, necessary journalism, all told with love and care and artistry. And did you know that a majority of KQED's funding actually comes from members? It's just people like you and me supporting the programs they love while also getting access to cool events, behind-the-scenes footage, and so much more. If you want to sign up and be a part of this amazing community, visit donate.kqed.org podcasts to become a member today. That's podcasts with an S. Thank you for listening, and thank you for your support. And welcome back to Political Breakdown. I'm Scott Schaefer here with Marisa Lagos. And our guest today is Goodwin Liu. He's an Associate Justice of the California Supreme Court, appointed in 2011 by then-Governor Jerry Brown. He's also clerked for the late Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg. Justice Liu, welcome to Political Breakdown. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure. No, you're joining us from Washington, D.C. You are back there along with many of her former clerks to honor her. What was it like uh, yesterday when uh, there was the ceremony at the Supreme Court, Chief Justice uh, John Roberts speaking? And what was it like for you personally and for, you know, for all the clerks who were back there? It was an incredibly solemn occasion. Um, It was a historic day. Um, It was a very bright and Uh, sunny fall um, day in Washington, um, D.C. All the clerks uh, stood in formation um, across the front plaza of the court. That was a very powerful image of the uh, part of the tremendous legacy that Justice Ginsburg left. Um, I think in each one of our hearts, we hold um, not only her memory and all the wonderful things that she did for us personally, but also her overall vision uh, of the law and um, the better America that she wanted. So you graduated from Yale Law School in 1998, and then you clerked for Justice Ginsburg from 2000 to 2001. Can you talk broadly about, I mean, we want to get into maybe some of the cases, but what did you learn from her as a jurist? I mean, what was the, what's the lessons that have stuck with you? Well, you know, as a jurist, um, Justice Ginsburg is a meticulous writer and editor. Um, She is um, someone who pays attention to every word, every comma, every phrase. Um, One day I um, happened to go into her office to get a case file. And inside that file was um, an internal memo that a law clerk had written to her these are just, you know, um, memos that go from us to her and they don't get published or circulated anywhere else. I happen to notice that on this memo were these faint pencil marks uh, catching little typos and missing commas and the like. <laughs> and this was a bit of a surprise to me because she never returned these memos to us. But this was just her way of, of demanding perfection in whatever was before her eyes. And, you know, it was a great... Uh, sort of lesson that you, know, you should strive for eliminating every error uh, because it's just a speed bump uh, to reading your argument or your analysis. And she just modeled that uh, in everything she did. One of the cases that came up while you were a clerk was a, a real historic one, Bush v. Gore, uh, which ultimately settled the 2000 presidential election. Uh, you were a clerk then. Um, how, did, uh, how did she approach that case? 
she approached that case the way she approached every case, which is what is so remarkable, uh, because obviously that was a very controversial, um, high temperature case. Uh, but she approached it with uh, the sort of cool, calm and collected manner um, that she brings to everything. Um, she was a paragon of just even temperament and collegiality, which I must say, um, as I've, you know, myself, and now, now being a judge and experiencing, you know, what it's like to disagree with your colleagues on things that matter to you, you know, that is, that was really, uh, again, just a model for all of us as to how to comport oneself uh, in the face of a very difficult situation. Yeah, I noticed reading about when you came to the Supreme Court that you modeled some of that behavior with uh, folks, you know, that she had she had that relationship with Scalia everybody talks about. I know you uh, enjoy hanging out with your colleagues outside of the court as well sometimes. Right. Um, I want to just ask, ask a quick, a oh, quick yeah. follow. Sorry. Um, you know, that case had such as you it was like political dynamite. And, you know, there's a sense sometimes from the outside that justices have a preconceived notion of how they're going to rule based on their own personal views or even their personal politics. I mean, it was no secret, I think, how Justice Ginsburg, Ginsburg felt about, you know, people like, uh, you know, Democrats versus Republicans. I don't want to read too much into it, but as someone who's been on the inside, how would you push back on that idea? Well, I mean, I think it's unfortunate, of course, that um, so many cases, not just Bush versus Gore, but just many cases in the Supreme Court end up five to four along some kind of predictable political axis. But um, I, I would just say, though, that I think one always has to be very careful about this to actually read opinions and look at legal arguments. Um, and, you know, uh, I don't think the law can really be understood as just politics uh, in some other name. Uh, you really have to look at things carefully because you, you won't be able to understand why there are some so-called surprise votes cast every so often. I mean, uh, this past term at the U.S. Supreme Court, we saw a number of what you might think of as crossover votes. And, um, you know, uh, we, we always hail those when they occur but um, if you look a little deeper into people's uh, methodological approaches to the law or um, how they've actually understood the legal issues, you might you know, gain a deep understanding of how judges actually approach cases. And yes, of course, there's going to be plenty of five to four decisions, but that is not um, you know, always a predetermined thing. I'm curious, I know you kept in touch with Justice Ginsburg and others in D.C., you guys obviously who are around there this week. Uh, and and it does feel like the last few years have the courts have become even more political than they were during that 2000 decision. Um, there is such a partisan fight over whether there should even be a nomination and confirmation before this uh, election. I'm curious how you feel about that and how you think Justice Ginsburg viewed these questions. Like, are these political fights delegitimizing the courts in some way? You know, I think um, judges of all stripes tried their level best to um, uh, comport themselves as judges and take the politics uh, out of it. Um, you know, Justice Ginsburg um, herself, I don't think was, you know, not fairly described as a political person. She actually was a very consistent person throughout her career, regardless of, you know, what party was in power or whatever. She had a very um, strong constitutional vision 
and I say it's a constitutional vision, not a political vision, but she had a constitutional vision about what the promise of equality meant, uh, not just for women, by the way, but for racial minorities, for uh, people with disabilities, for all kinds of people in this country. Um, and I think she, you know, some people have asked me, do you think she got more liberal, you know, as time went by because she was kind of, you know, branded a moderate when she first began. And my answer to that is, I don't think so. I think she was, she's been the same. If you go and read her confirmation hearing testimony from 1993, she is the exact same person then as she uh, was just um, uh, this year. So I think if anything, the world has changed around her a little bit. Um, the, of course, polarization, political polarization is um, very bad in this country. Uh, but she, she was above it in a certain way. You know, she had a certain idea about the Constitution, and that, through thick or thin, was her guide. Well, and so many people uh, were fascinated by her friendship, and it seemed to be a real friendship with Antonin Scalia, who, you know, would, they would disagree vehemently, you know, uh, from the bench sometimes in her dissents or his dissents. And I think it's, it's, it's um, uh, uh, surprising to so many people that you could do that at work and then go have a beer or go ride on an elephant, you know, in <laughs> India or Egypt, wherever they were in that iconic photograph. Yeah. Uh, you know, is that just them personally or is there something bigger a bigger lesson there about courts well that was that was very real i mean that was not for show the two of them really enjoyed each other and were deeply affectionate you know uh in their friendship i think it reflects the fact that neither of them uh despite the largeness of their personalities and what they stood for in the law um neither of them took themselves personally uh with undue seriousness, you know? They, they understood that, you know, um, you can certainly, you know, have these uh, beliefs and have contrasting uh, visions of how to interpret the Constitution. But at the end of the day, you know, at the more human level, um, they were able to see each other as people, both of whom were operating in good faith, uh, doing their best um, to do their uh, important work. So, as we alluded to at the top, I mean, you were sort of the victim of some of these partisan squabbles. Um, and, and I do want to talk about that. But I'm curious if you have any thoughts on whether Congress should take this up before the election. Is that something, um, you know, that, that it, are there things be, besides just political considerations, I guess, that Congress should be considering? Well, that's really not for me to say. Um, I think that all the arguments are being aired right now. And you know, the most important considerations have to do with the overall structure of government and the long-term implications of what, I mean, this is one controversy we're living in right now, but obviously it's gonna have ramifications uh, for the structure of government for years to come. I wanna ask about your family, Justice Liu. Your parents were both immigrants from Taiwan. Uh, you were born in Georgia, uh, I think lived briefly maybe in Florida. They were physicians um, and you ultimately moved to Sacramento. When I think you were about seven years old. Uh, what do you remember about uh, you know living in the South? <laughs> it's so interesting, Scott. I, um, several years ago, maybe six, seven years ago now, happened to be in Georgia for a speaking event in Atlanta and I had a few hours to kill one afternoon. And um, I rented a car actually, and decided to go visit my birthplace, uh, which was Augusta, Georgia, about two hours to the east. Um, I had never been there actually as an adult. And 
it was really interesting and eye-opening because, um, you know, Augusta's a small, t- still a smallish town. And, um, as as a uh, as an adult now, and having been uh, a scholar and a and a student of uh, when I was you know before a judge, I was a, a scholar of education law. I came to understand that the public schools in Augusta, Georgia, Richmond County, uh, were segregated, um, and they were segregated uh, for quite some time, even after Brown versus Board of Education. The first court order that began the desegregation of the Augusta public schools did not occur until I think after I was born in 1970. Mm-hmm. And so I always thought about, you know, how different my life would have been uh, had we stayed there. My dad had been stationed there for some medical training and it was not uncommon for immigrants um, like my parents to end up in some pretty out of the way places where um, they were underser- underserved in terms of health needs. And so um, we, we, you know, we left there. We, we then moved to an even smaller town, I think, in Florida uh, called Clewiston, um, which you would never have heard of, except it's the setting for uh, Zora Neale Hurston's book, Their Eyes Were Watching God. It's uh, the area right under south of Lake Okeechobee near Belle Glade. And Belle Glade was what we considered the big city. You know, it had 15,000 people <laughs> here in town, which had 5,000 at the time. And, you know, that was actually how I grew up, um, small town America, um, you know, one main street, uh, football on Fridays, uh, although I was too young to really understand that at the time. Um, and my parents uh, in that setting learned, uh, you know, for lack of a better word, how to assimilate uh, to America. I mean, they were ultra minorities, you might say, because they're sort of like a minority of one, you know, one or two. It's not like they had a community in these places. And so my parents um, uh, always very thankful for the opportunities that they got in this country, uh, kind of deeply believed in uh, the system and getting along and, um, you know, acculturating us basically to the mores of this country. You're listening to Political Breakdown. I'm Marisa Lagos here with Scott Schaefer, and we're, we've been talking with California Supreme Court Justice Goodwin Liu. This is a fundraising period for KQED Public Radio. For more information about how to support KQED, go to kqed.org. So, Justice Liu, I'm curious then, um, having that experience in a small town in Florida and then coming to Sacramento, I mean, did you feel did you feel American growing up? Were you very aware of your parents' um, immigrant status? I, I, I think I read somewhere that they didn't really teach you English until you went to um, kindergarten because they didn't want you to have an accent. Is that right? right. Yeah, like many immigrants, actually, that, that is the case. Yeah. Although if you ask the linguists, they will tell you that that, that doesn't really matter. But um, in any event, <laughs> yes, of course, they, they thought these kinds of things. And that's an indication of, again, like how solicitous they were of trying to make sure that you know, we were uh, properly uh, acculturated to our environment. But yes, absolutely, I felt um, both things. I felt deeply American because this is the only country I've ever known. Uh, But I also felt that duality of being, um, you know, in some ways an outsider, you know, because there's this great picture actually that captures this. When I was a little kid, uh, maybe about six or seven years old, I joined the Cub Scouts and um, there's this picture of me uh, wearing the Cub Scout uniform, um, the shirt, the handkerchief around my neck, and I got the little cap on. 
And then my bottoms are these horrible plaid pants <laughs> with knee patches. And it just, you know, it just shows you, you know, the top of the, that I was wearing was very regulation and the bottom was clearly homemade, right? <laughs> and that kind of epitomizes, you know, my upbringing, uh, living in both worlds as it were. And I think, you know, there's many, many analogs to this for lots mm-hmm. of people in this country who have felt that duality, the insider-outsider duality. Um, you can go all the way back to, you know, what W.E.B. Du Bois called, you know, double consciousness uh, when he described the experiences of black people in America. And I'm not going to compare my experience directly to that, but I'm just saying that there's a lot of this kind of uh, feeling that people have. They love this country so much, as do I, but they're also acutely aware that not everyone is always treated as a full member. And, you know, there's a lot of talk about the importance of diversity on the bench, and that's part of it, isn't it? Uh, That your own experience helps you understand some of the people and the cases that come before you in, in a way that's different than the justice or judge sitting next to you. Absolutely. And I think that um, that diversity encompasses a very, very broad range of characteristics, of which I think, of course, ethnicity and background is one. But just thinking about our court, for example, I mean, for having only seven seats, I would say we have a wonderfully diverse uh, bench. Um, We have, you know, uh, uh, a variety of professional experiences. Um, You know, Justice Cuellar and I are uh, former scholars. We have Justice Groban, who was a practicing lawyer and then worked in government. Justice Kruger was an appellate lawyer for a number of years. Uh, Our chief justice, uh, an amazing person, uh, was a prosecutor and then then worked in government and worked her way up the court system. Justice Corrigan, uh, also a prosecutor, worked her way up the court system. And then Justice Chin, who recently retired, uh, who contributed uh, many, many years to our court, was a practicing lawyer for a number of years Uh, and then also moved his way up the bench. And so I think it's, you know, that is so enriching. um, And I've learned so much from my colleagues. And that really is the way it's supposed to be. So we can't let you go without talking about that that bruising confirmation battle um, under President Obama. I believe this was 2011. You were nominated to the Ninth Circuit of Appeals. At the time, there were no Asian American judges at the appeals court level, I think, in the entire nation. And you basically got filibustered. They couldn't get the votes in the Senate. Republicans blocked and even a consideration of of the nomination. How did you leave that feeling and has it impacted your work and life since? Well, you know, of course, anybody who goes through something like that feels disappointed. And I certainly felt disappointed. Um, I understood at some point in the process that there were lots of forces beyond my control and um, I did not take it personally. Um, Certainly, you know, I don't claim to have uh, a perfect record or a perfect life. And there's many things that people could, um, you know, uh, criticize or target you for if that's what they want to do. Uh, But I'm proud of my life and I'm proud of uh, the things that I've worked on in my life. And I think overall, um, you know, I, I was able to communicate that in the process and, and didn't walk back from that. So I felt proud of that. Um, I, uh, I'll tell you a little story, which is that my, my disappointment was kind of short-lived because the, I was in Washington uh, the day of the filibuster, and then it happened. I flew back home that very night. It was a Thursday. And then uh, I was very disappointed, of course. The next day, Friday, I was walking into my um, office at UC Berkeley where I was teaching. 
And before I could even turn the handle to my door, the phone was ringing. I pick up the phone and it is my future colleague, Josh Grubin. Who was the governor Brown's appointment secretary, legal secretary. Who then said, he he says to me on a phone call, I see your fortunes have changed. (laughs) (laughs) Would you be interested in a conversation with Governor Brown about the California Supreme Court? And I said, well, you know, I'd be interested in just about anything right now. And so, (laughs) Not a bad consolation prize. (laughs) So, you know, uh, from there, Governor Brown then called me personally a few minutes later. And he said, you want to talk? Great. Uh, Meet me in my Oakland office at 1 p.m. today. (laughs) And so, you know, literally, I've never experienced such a swift change of fortune that, you know, the previous day I was languishing in the well of the Senate, you know, in a (laughs) building. Yeah. Later, I was sitting with Governor Brown. Yeah, we've got just a short time left, but I do want to ask you if Wikipedia is to be believed you're turning 50 next month, October. <laughs> what are you thinking? No, what are you, uh, <laughs> are you Are you going to be reflective about that? Uh, obviously, you've accomplished a great deal, but uh, what do you think? Well, I mean, I have been reflective. I think a lot of my peers are turning 50. Um, I'm thankful for my health. Uh, I'm thankful for two wonderful children. Um, I think as we get older, actually, the um, I was just talking to a colleague about this yesterday. The things that matter in life come into greater focus. Um, your family, your children, um, your parents. I mean, my parents are um, have lived a long life. Uh, they're over 80 years old now. And all of those things, I think, matter greatly to me. Um, and I'm balancing them get, uh, with my career. All right. Justice Goodwin, Lou, thank you so much for joining us. I know it's been a very difficult time for you with the death of Justice Ginsburg. Thank you so much for joining us. It's a pleasure. And that does it for this edition of Political Breakdown. It's a production of KQED Public Radio. Our producers, Guy Marzarati, our engineers, Katie McMurrin. KQED's team includes Holly Kernan, Ethan Tovin, Lindsay, Vinnie Tong, Erica Aguilar, and Jonathan Blakely. I'm Marisa Lagos. You can find me on Twitter at MLagos. And I'm Scott Schaefer. You can follow me on Twitter. I'm at Scott Schaefer. Thanks so much for listening. Sasha Coca, host of the California Report magazine. Every week, we bring you stories about what connects us in the giant, diverse Golden State. Because what happens in California changes the world. I love this place. We were once seen as, like, the place to be California. The land of milk and honey. That's where you go to Sunshine State. But we just have challenges right now. KQED's California Report magazine. New episodes drop every Friday, wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, it's Glenn Washington from Snap Judgment. And if you love what you're hearing, and I know you love what you're hearing, please consider becoming a KQED member. Get special access to cool events, behind-the-scenes footage, and so much more. Plus, you'll sleep better at night knowing you did your part for the community you depend upon. It's in you. Please be in it. Visit donate.kqed.org slash podcasts to sign up now. That's podcast with an S. Thanks.